Shout out to Pookie and them. And, and we, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column. What up? Come on. How y'all doing? It's your homie, Camille Foster. Uh, back with you again for episode eight. Wait a second. I think it's episode eight. We're not gonna no, do- this is episode seven. We're not going to do Black Scent the whole show? Ahead. No, we're not going to do Black Scent the whole, the whole show. That wasn't... That wasn't, that wasn't, I mean, can I was we, just can, talking can the way we, I normally talk to you guys. Can we not start with this, considering I sent you a tweet this morning, and someone's like, oh, you're on that podcast where they always use that word, and I'm like, you know, you can't see this as a podcast, <laughs> but the guy that's using it is actually a black guy, so come on. I don't even know what you're talking about. Okay, I sent it to you this morning, I'm check your, sure check your email, about. I'll welcome, retweet it. Welcome to the Fifth Column Podcast. <laughs> I'm Camille Foster of Freethink Media. I'm delighted <laughs> to be here with you again. Uh, I am joined by my very bright, thoughtful, dutiful co-conspirators matt welch of reason magazine matt hi hi there i don't use the (laughs) n-word michael michael moynihan of the daily beast and and he's an affiliation with vice news or something i'm not really sure what you do anymore Moynihan. Um, after you write things and you're very i I do after after this uh, podcast i have some big news for you but it's after the podcast i'm not gonna tell you okay great i want to hear about it after. yeah great great yeah um i'm coming out and we do (laughs) finally (laughs) he wants the world and he wants the world to know uh, and we also have a guest with us in the studio yeah, with us the for yeah. the entire hour because yes. he's such a generous gentleman. Yes. He almost certainly has the best accent of anyone who's been on this podcast. And that includes me. And that's a huge deal. Yeah. It's Mr. Charles Cook. Thank you. Charles C. W. Charles yeah. C. W. And you know, Cook. you know why you add the CW? It is it correlates with the plumminess of his accent. It's wow. not. It's he's not some you know brume. He's not like <laughs> he just has a very very lovely you know in the kind of universe of, yes. of accents in the UK. This is true. It, his is a, a, a kind of an Oxbridge kind true. of thing, this is which true. makes the Andrea Chanteroses of the world. <laughs> oh my god! No, I just I, he just told me that, that people blame him for things. So I'm just trying to bring that up immediately to get him in trouble. <laughs> so Charles, I apologize. It's not true. Uh, let me, okay. and, and I'll finish your intro. <laughs> Before we before we go too far, he he's he's a contributor at the National Review. No, editor, no, I'm a staff you, writer. Staff yeah. writer. He's a staff yeah. writer at the National Review. I should get things like that straight. It's okay. um, but you are also the co-host of Mad Dog, the Mad Dogs and Englishmen podcast. That's right, with it's Kevin very, Williams. Very good Kevin podcast Williams. with Kevin Williams, and who was when I first moved to New York, my across the hall neighbor. Is that true? Yeah, totally true. I've, like directly I've met, across the I've hall. I've met Kevin a couple times um, on doing Red Eye with him. A yeah. really nice guy. And uh, when I first met him, I said, who's this like incredibly goth guy that's in the green room? <laughs> he had like big, enormous, clumpy shoes on and he had like a chain kind of choker around his neck. And I was like, hmm. this guy looks like he might hurt me. Yeah. It's like, this is the guy from National Review. It didn't he really, was actually wearing a ball like, gag you know, when we, I first <laughs> met him, which was strange. That's, that's, that's was strange. And that's I, didn't, I wasn't looking at his face. Yeah, that's really interesting, uh, Camille. <laughs> that, that actually relates to the conversation <laughs> I want to have with you after the show. <laughs> that's great. I'm so glad we're finally getting Good. there. Um, this this podcast uh, may, may contain strong language. Uh, we'll certainly contain thoughtful an introspective commentary mm-hmm. on the world as we know it. Uh, we're going to talk a, a bit about uh, the Never Trump movement, which finds itself in a very difficult situation, and people are making very difficult choices. Uh, I'm sure that the man that Matt Welch uh, lovingly mm-hmm. called Cookie when we first got started mm-hmm. can give us some uh, some insight there. Uh, we're going to talk about some character named Ben Rhodes. I don't really know what's going on there. Uh, there is an author who wrote a book 
Uh, he made a ton of money. And unfortunately for him, he was trying to buy a home for $2.1 million. It's really, really unfortunate. We'll talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's some other things. Sad story. That one's a very sad story. So It, it is really sad. I think you should maybe also invoke some sort of trigger warning before people listen. Like it's, yeah. very, it's very upsetting. This, this episode may contain strong language triggers. And tons and tons of triggers. And a story about an author that will remind you of the film The Killing Fields. It's very depressing. Very deeply hurtful. But we'll get to that. If if The Killing Fields were 200,000 hours long and had no film editor. Uh, And 200,000 square feet in Brooklyn. So, Mr. Mr. Welch, what are we doing here? Well, uh, so last week we had the uh, precognition episode here. We Mm -hmm. had to record on a Tuesday morning. And uh, I've already forgotten what primary that was, but it was the one, Indiana, Indiana the one where the, uh, the the knife plunged finally into the ribs of the twitching corpse of uh, Ted Cruz. Uh, today, we're doing the same thing Tuesday for Wednesday. Uh, quick, does anyone even know where the primaries are being held today? No idea. Charles, Charles Cook, you're, you're shaking Words your head, over. too? Well, no, isn't there? I think the Democrats have a West Virginia primary. Yeah, yeah there's right. a West Virginia primary. Uh, so, uh, but I think all of the interesting uh, chatter of the last week has been... What do Republicans do? Is it to to Trump or to never Trump? Mm. Um, and uh, yesterday there was the uh, uh, I think Brett Stevens it's in today's Wall Street Journal actually uh, did his showy like why uh, Hillary Clinton is the great conservative hope. Uh, he joins Max Boots. So we have Bill we Trump. have four now that are actually explicitly um, neocons um, for Hillary. Neocons explicitly supporting Hillary. That's Max Boot, who did so in the L.A. Times the other day. Uh, Brett Stevens of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I think Robert Kagan has has done so also. Yeah. I mean, he was kind of lurching towards that a few months ago. And um, uh, the great P.J. O'Rourke, who oh, that's right. uh, not who, neocon exactly, not but, neocon, but, but definitely a great hate endorsement on wait, wait, don't tell me. Uh, which I didn't. I didn't actually hear the endorsement because it's the worst show on the radio. Yeah, and uh, it's one of those unfunny NPR shows. And so he basically said, you know, I hate everything about this woman, but her awful views are within the parameters of the sort of you know real acceptable discourse in good taste. Was more or less what he said. I'm kind of, hmm. kind of paraphrasing, but uh, so he's he's explicitly uh, supporting Hillary Clinton. Too. Uh, a character that I thought is interesting. I, I went back and searched my own uh, archives for neocons for Hillary and realized that the first time I wrote anything was in 2013. Hmm. Uh, back then, when it still seemed plausible, uh, uh, John McCain was asked, "What would you do if he had to choose between Rand Paul and Hillary Clinton for president?" I think this is in a New Republic interview. Uh, and he said, well, Hillary Clinton is really a, a, a pretty great statesman. Uh, she's serious about foreign policy, on and on and on. They're like, wait a second. So you would vote for Hillary? And he's like, I'm just I'm not I'm not going to say one way or the other. This is in 2013. And I made the bold and inaccurate uh, prediction that uh, uh, when Rand Paul wins the nomination uh, in 2016, <laughs> that McCain would uh uh, be uh, the uh, the keynote speaker at the DNC at the Democratic Convention huh. because I stupidly thought there's no way in hell he's ever going to run for re-election again because he's going to be 80 years old yeah. in yeah. 2016 and his father and grandfather died in their 60s because they're drunks. Uh, and uh, <laughs> that's, that's nice. That's <laughs> nice. It's true. It's in his yeah. books. Hey, um, um, next, why don't you say that only losers get shot down? <laughs> oh, God, I can't believe this. Wasn't Unbelievable. Not, not a great <laughs> but, uh, for heroes who don't get. But yeah. uh, McCain is. 
now in this pickle because he's uh, on one hand he's said he's going to you know endorse the nominee. On the other hand, he's making sure that Politico gets to run stories about how in privately he's anguished that he's never seen Hispanics this mad before, and what Trump is doing is really terrible. McCain's alter ego and co-author Mark Salter is another neocon for Hillary who came out in another Politico piece uh, uh, the other day. Couple interesting things about this. Uh, one is that uh, uh, you know it just shows what happens if you stay in Republican politics your entire life. You get to you get to be uh, forced into these uh, dumb situations. But the other is that McCain ran in twenty ten. Uh, also, so he's this guy who's always hated the GOP base, sometimes for good reason. Um, who uh, ran in two thousand? He had been a comprehensive immigration reformer, all this kind of stuff. Do you remember his twenty ten ad? Uh, we need to complete the dang defense. There's a terrible YouTube video of him just uh, talking to a, a border guard, making a tour. Uh, and he decides because he was running in a competitive primary election in Arizona and Arizona is crazy, as we all know, um, that he had to go full uh, crazy immigration phobe uh, then. Um, and Salter, in addition to all this, uh, was uh, asked at the end of uh, uh, his interview with Politico, um, yeah, this sounds great, you know, uh, that uh, Trump is uh, is awful, he's terrible, he's beyond the pale – didn't you guys select Sarah Palin as yeah. your as your vice president yeah. here? Yeah. Uh, what I'm saying is that uh, there's an amount of culpability uh, with the never Trump crowd who I normally would. Uh, I, I appreciate their arguments. I agree with probably 85 percent of them. Um, but there isn't a real sense. And I want to get Charles a view on this as the author of the conservatarian manifesto, um, which might uh, have even more failed predictions than my 2013 <laughs> piece. And I say that with uh, with nothing but uh, fondness uh, for it. Um, but uh, it feels like the people who are going against Trump are not taking culpability for how we got and how conservatism got to this moment, which is something that you've been fighting against in some of your own writing. What do you take? Well, I am. <laughs> I'll start by saying I am not for Hillary. So I'm not one of those people who uh, would go from voting Republican to voting Democrat. I would just not vote for either. I'm also not a neocon, for the record. Uh, although I'm probably more in favor of intervention than, say, you are. But not Moynihan. Uh, no. no. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I do think that the Republican Party bears some of the blame. And I think you can see that in what happened to Ted Cruz, because he had created this door through which he thought he was going to walk. Uh, he did it in part with the shutdown. He did it by lying to people as to how the constitutional order worked, uh, the idea that Republicans haven't fought hard enough, and that's why the president has a veto still. Uh, and then Trump came along, and he walked straight through the door, and, and Cruz was left uh, crying in the corner, uh, which I think was, was a shame, given that Trump was the alternative. But if you'd asked me two years ago whether it's a bad thing that Ted Cruz was going to fail in 2016 i would have said no but charles uh, I, you wrote something the other day and i want you to speak to this a little bit because this is the thing that i hear most frequently when people say well i talk to trump supporters mostly i talk to them online i don't I'm, i've never seen one in the wild because <laughs> you know because i'm a coastal elite and you know this I've, i think if i lived in nebraska i still wouldn't see any trump people the the argument is pretty consistently is that, well, obviously there's Donald Trump because we have elected Republicans who have failed 
to be conservative. So therefore, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna nominate a liberal, which is apparently this is the logic here. So, but this is the thing that I hear most frequently. You wrote about this, I think, the other day, didn't you? About this idea that 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 the Republican Congress and that you know the tea everybody that was elected in the Tea Party wave they've all failed us so spectacularly. So therefore, we're going to Trump. What are we supposed to make of this argument? Well, I don't agree with it. I think it's just ignorant. I'm not saying the Republican Party hasn't made mistakes, and obviously, I have a lot of problems with the Republican Party. I wrote a book about that. But if you contend that Republicans rolled over and gave Obama everything he wants, which is the line you hear from Trump supporters, you're just wrong. And the fact is, if Republicans hadn't been there since 2008, we would now have a public option. We'd now have card check. We'd now have gun control at the federal level, probably a national registry. We'd certainly have private checks, uh, checks on private sales. Uh, We may even have an assault weapons ban. Um, we'd also, most importantly from the Trump perspective, have the very immigration bill that they hated. Now, I understand if they don't want to back Marco Rubio or John McCain because they helped with that bill. But if Republicans hadn't run the House in 2013, that bill would have been signed into law by President Obama. It left the Senate. It would have gone to a Democratic House. It would have gone to Obama. And they somehow think that Republicans have given in. And so if Trump blows out the whole party, if he blows out the whole right in 2016, it doesn't matter anyway because, hey, the right has given in. Well, they ought to think about what the country will look like. Again, I know we have disagreements between us as to what the country should look like, but Mm -hmm. from their perspective, by their own logic, they ought to think about what the country will look like in 2017 if there is no Republican opposition, because they're actually going to sit there and watch Chuck Schumer and Hillary Clinton do everything that they hate. Uh, I I don't know quite where they've got... Well, I was going to say I don't know where they've got this idea. I do know where they've got this idea. They've got it from Mark Levin and Sean Hannity and Ted Cruz, people who keep telling them that, you know, much like Occupy Wall Street would tell you, we just don't want it enough on the left. If we really wanted it enough, we would have socialism in America. Conservatives are bought into this idea that if, if Republicans had just wanted it enough, Obama would have signed off on the repeal of his entire agenda. But of course he wouldn't have. And so now they're going to end up with nothing. It's a supreme irony, isn't it? They think Republicans have have caved, so they're going to put them in a position where they have to. So what is the fundamental issue if it's not that that Republicans don't want it enough? Is it just that the voters disagree fundamentally with the values of conservatism, let's say? Well, I don't think they disagree fundamentally. I think it's a split country. I think it's a divided country. There are lots of different philosophies, but border you know on the on the on the margins we're we're at about 50-50 split between the coalitions that have been created over the last but those 50 coalitions years. It, there's something pretty bizarre about no, like there a, is. a republican debate for example where none of the presidential candidates are willing to go out on a limb at this point and defend free trade which is supposed no. to be sort of a, a, a critical fundamental component of their sure. party's platform. Well, look, I, I'm an unabashed free trader, and I was disappointed yeah. by that too. But what, in answer to your, to your question, um, I think that it's not that the public is anti-conservative in toto, and it's not that they're anti-progressive in toto. There is a split in the country, and it seems to have manifested itself in constant divided government. And when you have constant divided government, you can't repeal things. You can't make sweeping changes. You you can unfortunately still spend tons and tons of money. <laughs> well, because and the, find the yourself train keeps rolling. Well, wars that don't end. To Charles' point, though, uh, you know, because there was Republican opposition, federal spending got flattened for right. several years. There, there was an actual. Uh, sequester deal. Mm -hmm. They actually cut military spending for about 18 months, which was pretty incredible 
to witness that. They're, they did bring they did, the they did president. They did all they could to try to undo that. That was that was no. Not, they, that was no doing of their own. They screwed. We were fortunate. Uh, well, and then Republicans have run away screaming from that, and yeah. uh, and Paul Ryan is is chief among uh, those practitioners. But mm-hmm. I think that speaks to the fragility uh, or the frayedness of the traditional Republican coalitions, and it even gets sure. back to kind of the the neocons for Hillary, which would have happened if. Uh, certainly Rand Paul would have won, arguably even if Ted Cruz would have won, depending on how he ran against Hillary, because that sense, the Max Boudian sense, the the Bill Kristolian sense of American foreign pol- policy is very central to at least a, a part of the coalition of republicanism. And and I think you have these these essential conflicts between different wings of what is the one idea that we're not going to let go of. And for a different people, it's different things. And it's a, it shows it's all pretty fragile. I, that's that's exactly right. Um, the the unfortunate truth for people on the right, and this goes for conservative libertarians, pretty much everyone who is on the right, who is fiscally conservative, is that the public is not really fiscally conservative. And mm-hmm. so when you have a fight between the president, who is not fiscally conservative, and those people within the Republican Party who are, uh, there aren't many of them, but they have managed to cause a national fight more than once. The public sides with the president. Now, I know he has structural advantages. He's one guy. There's many congressmen. I know that shutdowns hurt uh, the party that caused them because people see children not getting their cancer care and so forth. Uh, but conservatives have deluded themselves that we're going to shut down the government overspending and the public's going to say, yes, I am angry enough about this to side in perpetuity there's, with the Ted Cruz's of the world. And they're not going to do it. There's one exception to that rule. Uh, and it's my big critique of, of Ted Cruz and all of that. Um, public does support holding the line on the debt ceiling. That was the one piece of leverage that people said, yeah, we shouldn't raise that. You should get some concessions for that, which was the thing that kind of caused the sequestration cuts to come through uh, as well. They punted because of the Ted Cruz shutdown in 2014 or 2013. I'm forgetting where exactly it it took place. It discredited any kind of brinksmanship. And the Paul Ryans of the world said, "Okay, that's it. They've punted the debt ceiling until 2017. We yeah. don't have a debt ceiling anymore. Oh, whatever. Let's let that go. Now that Republicans run both branches of Congress, uh, which is another thing that I think the Trump supporters kind of um, you're, you're right to say that their logic is bad. I just would question how much there is a thought through logic anyways, more than just kind of an impulse of those people are doing it wrong. And I think they're kind of right. Those people are, in many cases, especially when they get power, doing it wrong and not representing our views. Uh, unfortunately for me, what those views are and what what's uh, uh, held up high in value are not necessarily my own. I mean, this is the difficult conversation to have about economics, uh, especially in a presidential election year, is the idea that anybody knows anything about this stuff at all. And you see it on mm-hmm. a mass level. And when you see it on a mass you're not looking at sort of little congressional races and things and people having these little fights about local issues. When you see it on a mass level, the ignorance is absolutely appalling and to the idea about trade and you know you can't the one kind of criticism of you know the elites and the the sort of beltway cocoon and the rest of it the one thing that i agree with on this is the idea that most of us think that people care about these things and then we realize that the kind of hayekian instinct and the freedmanite instinct doesn't exist even amongst republican voters you know i mean this this idea that free trade is a good thing because the one thing that is governs all of this the one thought you just have to go back to Bastiat and realize that the seen and the unseen is all we need to know about. I mean, this is essentially explains the kind of economic thought 
of American voters right now. We we can see that Carrier is shipping jobs to, to Mexico, and we can see that 200 people no longer have jobs. We don't see all the other benefits of trade, and this is essentially the only argument that anyone's having about economics in this in this uh, election cycle at all. And th- this will sound an odd sentence, but uh, this is in some ways why I feel sorry for people who are in the position that the elites are in. Because if you know that free trade is good, and yet everyone who you rely upon to support you for office thinks it's bad, you essentially have to lie. I mean, people keep saying, well, Donald Trump is showing that many people are against free trade, and we have to listen to that. Well, maybe, but you wouldn't say, well, Donald Trump is showing many people are against the First Amendment, so we have to listen to that. You would just say, no, the First Amendment is there, and it is right, and you're wrong. So when it comes to trade, what exactly is a pro-free trader supposed to do when his constituents say, we don't want welfare to fill in the losers from trade, we don't like trade, so you need to go and get rid of trade? I mean, what is he, is he supposed to say? Well, I suppose that's what you want, because that's just a recipe for impoverishing everyone. And you've taken away his chance to mitigate the effects of trade. There are some some negative effects of sure. trade. I think one uh, interesting kind of strategic uh, element to this in the political race. Uh, and uh, Camille, since you're the, the pro Trump guy here, uh, maybe you want to get into <laughs> uh, is that Trump is obviously going after Sanders voters in Trump's victory speech on Tuesday after Indiana. He pivoted as fast as he could to trade. He called NAFTA the single worst deal in the history of all international deals. Mm-hmm. Not even the worst trade deal, just the worst deal anyone had ever made in history. Yeah. You know, it's funny you know how many the, worst the, deals uh, there are that he's can ever we, seen. Can we classify the Treaty of Versailles as an international deal? Because <laughs> no. that was actually kind of bad. It didn't... So you're against the creation of Czechoslovakia? <laughs> you wanted to keep, you wanted to keep the Habsburg Empire look, in perpetuity? Look, I mean, the Ruhr is... down, sir. The Ruhr is French. You should, they should be able to get all that coal. Uh, the, the, <laughs> the interesting thing about this is, to that point, is that you one doesn't even notice anymore the whiplash that you know of Donald Trump changing positions. I mean, you see him, you know, disavowing his own tax plan on the Sunday shows. Like, you know, we need. To, I think you know this is we should negotiate this. The negotiations haven't started yet, and he's already giving he's, ground on it. He's so he's I actually had a conversation with somebody about this who was defending this position and said, well, you know, you do have to negotiate. I think, but there's no I, negotiation. I'm actually, he's negotiating with I'm Jonathan Carl or George Stephanopoulos and saying, I am prepared <laughs> to raise taxes on wealthy people or actually not go from 39% to 25% yeah. to do something in the middle. It's like, you know, is this a kind of signaling to, towards Bernie voters? And, you know, he's he, he doesn't like Wall Street in for very different reasons. When you're a real estate developer in New York, there's this factionalism. You don't like Wall Street. It's not because, you know, he's a Marxist that is from Burlington, Vermont. I mean, it's a very different instinct. But I think this has got to be some I can't even get my head around all of these changing views. So when people say to me, the never Trump kind of crowd here, it's like, you know, I mean, I say this like, I, thank God that Paul Ryan is going to have some principle. And I mean, there's, by the way, so much wiggle room there. Uh-huh. The, the idea of like right now, I mean, Ben Sass, who I think is actually doing a really good job of this and saying, you know, screw you guys. But it doesn't, I mean, to the point about free trade, it shouldn't really surprise anybody if people are jumping on board with Donald Trump because, you know, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Everyone is now all of a sudden conservatives, you know, pissing on free trade. So why should we be surprised when they're throwing all their other principles out the window to support the nominee? Yeah, I don't, I, I mean, look, Every candidate that runs for office during the primaries has a Camille. set of positions <laughs> and then they, they gradually move towards the middle, as it were. And Donald Trump is not sophisticated. 
He no. does not do it with any sort of, you know, uh, uh, genteel mannerisms. He's blunt. I'm going to negotiate some things. And sure, I want to get that, but I won't get it. That's actually not a particularly difficult argument to understand. It was actually surprising to me when I watched him talking to George Stephanopoulos over the weekend. And George Stephanopoulos just seemed stunned and astonished that he would admit candidly that, yes, I have one position that I tell voters about at this point in time. And I don't expect to get all of those things. So I'll get less of it. That isn't particularly galling. Um I, I do wonder, though, and I saw this um, this George Will piece in The Washington Post, which I'm sure you guys read as well, where he he makes a nod towards the Camille Foster fight club theory of politics, uh, where he says, looking does he, on, does he credit looking, you? And he doesn't. <laughs> Holy crap. But, we should we should talk about that. Yeah. Uh, but looking on the bright side, speaking of challenges, Trump's nomination might have two solitary effects. Uh, it might contract the cult of the presidency. And you mentioned Gene, Healy. Gene Healy's yeah, book in 2008. Yeah. And we've talked about that yeah. before. Like the notion that Donald Trump, a lot like everybody else, kind of advocating for the same ideas. You call it a fence. I call it a wall. I'll say it'll be super duper high. And I may even say some disgusting things to support my position. But you still hold the same position. And I wonder, Charles, if you've if you've given any thought to this possibility. Um, you know, it's a conversation that we've had that programs like Cointelpro Pro. Once they're exposed, you actually see like the government pull back in certain ways. I wonder if a disastrous Trump administration shows everyone that executive power kind of can't get the things done that you think it will. I wonder if you could actually have a drone program where civilians get killed and we call them because they happen to be of a certain age and because they happen to have the right genitalia enemy combatants without actually class without them actually being enemy combatants. I wonder if you could get away with that kind of shit. Before, if you before we go, for, you, you went to droning genitalia from Donald Trump. In I said 30 droning seconds. people pretty, and genitalia. Pretty I'm good. pretty yeah. damn good. Yeah. I'm good all at right, this. Right, didn't go know, I didn't know we could drone genitalia. But you can. I mean, I personally can. We're going to talk people, about that after the show. Droning <laughs> yeah. people who, when they were in person form, had genitalia. Yeah, yeah. Okay, to be, yeah. to be uh, clear. All right, Ron Paul. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I long have thought that the only way of shrinking the presidency and, and in, uh, diminishing the role that the presidency plays in our culture is to have a, a competent conservative president, popular conservative president, hmm. whom the left dislikes and therefore needs to take down a peg. The problem with Donald Trump is that he's now shown how to win. And he's done it by playing not a, a modest role, not a, a collegian role, uh, but an outsized role. And people keep joking about Kanye West being president in 2020. I'm not it's, joking. Well, it's half, a, <laughs> yeah. it's half a joke, but yeah. his celebrity has helped him an enormous amount. People have watched him on The Apprentice. They like the fact that he's on the news 24-7. Now, I'm not saying that the next person who runs for president on the left or right is going to be exactly like Donald Trump, but they're certainly not going to draw the lesson that you need to be modest. I mean, had, say, Scott Walker managed to become the nominee and then the president... Perhaps you would have seen uh, a little reduction uh, in the glitz around politicians, and certainly uh, progressives would, for once, have have endorsed uh, that reduction because they would have uh, they would have been been made nervous by him. But with Trump, I I, I don't think he's going to be president, and I think if he is president, he's he is after Obama going to be the next celebrity president. I think if anything, he'll make it worse. Um, I'm going to uh, segue here by insulting Camille um, again, uh, which is to say that the uh, I think there's a false normalization happening with Trump. Um, 
uh, in which we say, hey, look, every you know, every politician lies. I can show you I can show you a 13 minute YouTube video of Hillary Clinton lying. And I can. And it's pretty great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, every politician changes positions. I think Donald Trump, uh, to P.J. O'Rourke's point, is actually outside the norm. He lies so much. It is crazy how much he lies. And I think if someone shows a demonstrated ability to say things that they know are not true in the pursuit of political gain, it is a disqualifying thing. I wrote the same thing in the New York Post during Obama's reelection that his lying, let alone anything else, makes him disqualified for that. And you don't get to respond because I'm going to pivot and go no, to no, Michael. Don't, don't, don't let me defend myself quickly, yeah. please, please. All right. I think there's a thin line between like never Trumpism and defending the status quo and pretending that the status quo is somehow like good and acceptable. Like it almost sounds that way when I hear good, thoughtful, well-meaning conservatives and libertarians talk about how awful Donald Trump is, how we need to save the country. We have to stop him at all costs. We should look at the actual track record of the past four, five, six administrations and the disastrous and calamitous things that they've done. I and think, I don't but know I think you're probably what do you think we don't wrapping look shit. at them. I know, but I'm just saying I don't think that wrapping shit in good in good wrapping paper like is necessarily I, better. I, I just think this is a, I think this is too binary of a view that, that that we can't also point out that everybody else I, no, is no, horrible. I, I'm not but what you have can. to do I'm just to saying the, there's a thin line. To I'm the PJ O'Rourke point, I think that the worst thing about this type of lying and the worst thing about the uh, Trumpism and this, you know, being outside of the bounds is it really really kind of stokes the worst instincts of the worst people on the planet. Sure. And to see that come out, I mean that is just surprising to people because it also over lies you know this being the first real twitter election i mean the last time we had twitter as a factor but all of a sudden you're like you know poking and all these rats are coming flying out and it's just like wow this is really provoking some really bad instincts and some really bad people you know had it been you know 19 whatever 1992 and pitchfork pat is you know going crazy and all of a sudden you know david duke sends something out in his print kind of newsletter it doesn't have that same impact so i don't know if it's if we're kind of over uh, compensating for something that's a small uh, thing. I don't know, but it, it really seems deeply sinister this time around. Well, I, I also think it's possible to think that things are bad, but that Donald Trump is worse. This yeah. is something people often say to me online. They say, oh, so you must think everything's fine. And I don't know where from my writing over the last four years they would have got that impression. I just think that Donald Trump is A, not capable and not willing to fix what is wrong, mm-hmm. and B, is so unstable as a human being that he would probably make the country more angry, more divided. D- division is not a bad thing inherently. It's good to have division when, when you mean diversity of thought and so forth. But I'm talking about just sheer anger at one another based on tribal allegiance. I think Donald Trump will make that worse. So I agree that there is there is a risk of making it seem as if everything's hunky-dory and therefore we don't need anyone to shake it up. But I don't think that is the Never Trump Although case. Although he's managed to bring George Will, President Obama, Hillary Clinton, just about everyone else that you could think of who's right-thinking, all on the right side and the same page. He's, they a, hate he's a unifier. I don't know. Uh, the, uh, in one way that I agree with uh, Camille, uh, 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 President Obama said, I think last week he gave uh, either a speech or, or some remarks to reporters saying, you know, you really need to go after this Donald Trump character because uh, he says things that aren't true uh, and we need to fact check his lies. And that's really the function of the press and this kind of stuff. And the and the journalists there. Oh, yeah, we, we definitely need to do that. The president is right. When this happens, <laughs> I turn purple uh, because this administration has been as mendacious as any in modern history. There's a recent story. Mm-hmm. 
over uh, last week in the New York Times Magazine profile, Ben Rhodes, douche bro, uh, extraordinaire. (laughs) Uh, You know why Emmanuel's mad about this, by the way? My wife is because uh, he apparently wrote some fiction before he became uh, a senior foreign policy advisor. uh, And and started writing a different type of fiction. (laughs) Talking about how people who live in garden apartments are losers. And Emmanuel's like, yeah, Yeah. we're not losers. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mean, you might be, but for different reasons. Yeah, totally. Kind of for that reason, (laughs) too. Real estate related. Talk a little bit about this piece and what it tells yeah. us both about the Obama administration's track record and the way that it is sort of received and spit out by the, uh, oh, the press. I mean, this is something that I can't believe that this 10,000 word story that, you know, you finally get to the one nugget in the middle that everyone's getting upset about. I can't believe that it's caught fire the way it has. And it's sort of the navel gazing thing. I remember when I did the Jonah Lehrer story and I was on the phone with him uh, about two hours before I this is Jonah Lehrer, the guy who fabricated much yeah. crap about Bob Dylan and everybody else. Michael Monahan ruined his career, and now yeah. he only has to make about $500,000 a year uh, giving TED Talks. <laughs> by, by the way, I didn't ruin his career. I just redirected his career. Now he's like talking about how he lied and getting paid for it. So, I mean, it's a little slightly different thing. But I remember, and you know, by the way, the, the, the people who published that uh, piece, the editor who published it, and the person who edited it was uh, the guy who wrote the Ben Reds piece, by the way. Uh, oh. David Samuels, uh, who's at Tablet Magazine, where the where the piece was published. But I remember, I remember being on my fire escape in Brooklyn, dealing in with him this the whole morning, and he's, you know, hyperventilating and panting. It's the end of my career, and finally, he said to me at one point, he said, "Are you going to do any media surrounding this story?" And I, always, I forever felt bad about this because I said to him. You know, I don't think so. I've written what I'm going to write, and I think that, you know, I've made my point and it's, it's done. The story came out later that day. Three weeks later, I finally said, I'm not going to do any more interviews about this. And the point being is that the media is obsessed with itself. I mean, we love to navel gaze more than I think any other profession. And this, the whole Ben Rhodes thing has, you know, it just exposes for people for what, what they care about. So basically the, the point is in the Ben Rhodes story, David Samuels writes, and it's basically about the Iran deal. And it is about the spinning of the Iran deal in some in some point in the story. There's other stuff in the story. But the spinning of the Iran deal from the Obama administration, particularly from Ben Rhodes, who is his number two guy, more or less. And the point being that nobody knows who this guy is, but he's really spinning. Everyone. And there's a big Twitter element, too. You know, There's a great line where he says Laura Rosen. One of the people says Laura Rosen, who's kind of a sort of lefty foreign policy uh, person, was was he said uh, she was my RSS feed. I would just give her things and she would just retweet them. And what I am kind of surprised by is that the people that are are responding to this, the people who love the kind of manufacturing consent view of the world, the Chomskyite view of the world, that the media is just, you know, they're lapdogs. We actually see an example of this and it's not speculative. We actually have the people that are feeding this stuff saying in kind of sort of a contemporaneous story in real time saying we're feeding this stuff and they're biting and they're lazy and they're just they're just doing our job for us. And the point, which I think is really interesting, is some of the reaction. Now the reaction is from some a number of these people who like the Obama administration's uh, Iran deal and don't think that anyone should ever criticize it. And if you do criticize it, you must be some sort of drooling neocon are now focusing on David Samuel's politics because David Samuel's, you know, gave a talk and he said he, he opposed the Iran deal. But I think the interesting bit in the story is how the kind of sausage is made now. How the, you know, the, is it different? And this is the thing that I've been kind of, you know, rolling around in my head is like, is it much different than it was 
I don't know, in 1970, just sort of different modes of communication. It's a bit faster on Twitter. But I think the one element that's different is Ben Rhodes, or I think it was Ben Rhodes that says this in the piece, says that, you know, these people know nothing. It's a great quote. He said the 27-year-old journalist, I think he's a little high on that too. I mean, there's <laughs> people I see at BuzzFeed writing about kind of foreign policy and stuff, some of them are 24, 25. They know nothing. They have no background. My argument is always like, you know, it used to be that you would be a court reporter for the, you know, Newark Star Ledger and kind of learn how to ask questions, learn how to report. But we need so many bodies and so much content now that people get plopped into a seat at, you know, Fusion for $160,000 a year when they're 24 and, you know, this is what they're exploiting. And I think that's a really kind of key takeaway of the piece, which I thought was really interesting, was that this change in journalism is not something that they're sitting by and watching and saying, look at this organic change that is a result of technological change. They're saying, how the hell can we exploit this? The fact that all of these journalists are now like 14 years old and they need stories. They don't know how to report. And as it pointed out by Ben Rhodes in the piece, they're not anywhere. They're not reporting from Cairo. They're not reporting from, you know, sort of Lebanon or they're just sitting in New York and D.C. and they don't leave the building. They don't leave their chairs. And this has been a complaint for me a long time about the quality of news. But this is the first time you really see someone confronting the fact that these technological changes and what's happening now means that the way we get news, it's a lot easier to plant stuff. The uh, the uh, thing that I uh, focused in on was uh, his reliance on the concept of narrative, because this actually fits yeah, in that's right. with Obama's whole career, his administration, and that's his right. pre-administration. Remember, Obama's memoir, he made shit up. Yeah. There are like composite characters. Yeah. Uh, it was in the service of a greater and broader truth. This has always been uh, what he does. Um, he uh, uh, Every night before he goes to bed by reports, he has folders. He has binders full of stories of of uh, individual human beings in America and what they're what the the problems that they're going after and the, the letters uh, that they write him. And he tries to and he talks about this in his own books and his own commentaries about his, his presidency. He's trying to bring their stories, their narrative. This is Obama's words uh, so that he can sell policies. And this is really how they uh, go through life. This is how they sold Obamacare through the narrative of we are fighting special interests, which they weren't. They were co-opting and, and employing special interests um, to sell this narrative that we know is not true. Uh, so for me, um, it's this is how a narrative looks like uh, or this is how um, uh, uh, this administration has used this uh, with the knowledge that if you get the broad story generally uh, accepted as X, even though it isn't, even though it's X minus Y or something like that, then the details kind of don't matter and you can bring a lot of people to your side. And I think that should be a moment of incredible self-reflection among the political press. You're being played. You're being played uh, as fitting into that narrative. And when you do, I mean, think about back the way Obamacare was sold. The press, the fact-checking press in 2010, 11, something like that, one of the PolitiFacts said the lie of the year was not how the thing was being sold. It was a Facebook post by Sarah Palin about death panels. Yeah, that I, was the I, look, lie of the year. I think That's that, that, buying into yeah. a narrative because you're no longer focused on power. You're focused on evil Republicans are doing their evil Betsy McConaughey thing again. Yeah, so, I, I, yeah. I, one quick thing is that is that I think that um, I mean everything Sarah Palin says. You don't need to fact check it. You just assume that it's wrong. <laughs> she is literally the dumbest woman on the political stage. And that the interview she gave the other day, it's one of those things. You ever drive in the car and, and you know somebody in a call-in show and you have that secondhand embarrassment when someone calls and 
then they're just you know nattering on. You have to turn it down. And I do this, and I turn it back up. Like yeah, it's yeah. on. You know, uh, what's the NPR show with the one with the wobbly voice? I can't remember. Diane Reem. Diane Reem. I'm always turning that down, and and like then I turn it back up. The caller is gone. That's like Sarah Palin for me. I actually have to turn the TV off and turn it on mute because she's so embarrassing. But the point I think is this one narrative that that you see, this one line that you see. So I don't want to say narrative uh, so frequently with the Trump campaign is that the era of fact checking is over the Glenn Kessler's of the world, the, you know, PolitiFact stuff. It's over because nothing is true anymore. All right. I'll acknowledge a certain amount of that, but you know, was it ever the case? I mean, when, when I look back at the Obama stuff, it's like, you know, the era of fact checking was over then too. I mean, people are just fact checking based on sort of what, like the look at the sort of conservative attacks and conservatives are right about this. They're attacks on, on PolitiFact. And I think it's Mark Hemingway yeah. who really loves attacking them. But, you know, the idea of fact checking as this sort of beautiful thing that that, you know, there's just all these kind of drones who look at this material and they they're just unbiased and they just look at facts because there are facts. And that's when I start sounding like a like a weirdo. Uh, postmodernist that you know at a university is that you know there's a fact that the, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor on December seventh, nineteen forty one. Why they did is right. not a fact. Right, Who knows? Right. Yeah. And that's what most of this fact checking stuff is. And so you know the the great example of this we're beyond fact checking. All right, well look at the David Samuel's Ben Road story. We're beyond fact checking. Is anyone fact checking this stuff? It's like no. It's a, it's a it's a pipe that goes directly from the White House into the hands of a certain you know, group of very, very influential journalists and journalists like that kind of access. Absolutely. I have somebody in the White House. Yeah. Let me let me talk to them. Let's see. What, and they you know, you want and when you want to maintain that access, you're going to burn them. No, you're, I mean, everyone knows how this works. Every journalist knows. how. This, so this idea of purity. I mean, I like the fact that this that this piece exposes a certain element of this and we get to see it um, because nobody's usually that frank. That's the thing about the story is he flat out saying he's spiking the football. yeah we're we're and by the way no one's asking why ben rhodes who is so clever at spending uh, spinning the media is actually giving this uh you know interview with with uh, uh david samuels why this is happening he's all of a sudden not sophisticated about the media but look i think the the bottom line is this is something that always goes on and this is a, a sort of open window to what to to what is happening so I don't know if any of you have read Ace of Spades' uh, essay on the MacGuffinization of politics. Have you read this? Mm-mm. No. So I, I thought about this when I read the the Samuel's Road story. Uh, the, the basic gist is that in movies, uh, good action movies, good adventure movies contain a MacGuffin, and, and the, I think the word was was used by Hitchcock. The idea is that it doesn't actually matter what it is. The average movie you watch, Mission Impossible, you know, Indiana Jones, it doesn't matter what they're searching for. You just start to care that they get it because they're all emotionally invested in it. And you don't mind about the details. You don't ask about the internal consistency. You don't care whether it's scientifically accurate. They say, well, we need the ball of McGrog and we have to find it or everyone will die. And then you watch it for two hours and it's wildly entertaining. Uh, you don't care about the ball of McGrog, except insofar as it affects the characters, some of which are good, some of which are evil. And the the point he was making is that this is how we talk about politics, so that it becomes, well, Obama wants this, and these other people don't want him to have it. And that's the story, not what it is that he wants. And I think when you have 27-year-olds in these positions of uh, responsibility. How old are you, Trust? I'm 31. I'm going to come on to that. <laughs> you have, no, no, but I, I am. When you have 27-year-olds, there is uh, a, a problem, and it's not that they're young, per se. It's that there is very little institutional memory 
in them or around them. Now, I have this problem as well, which is why I tend to write about few things that I know enough about. I didn't comment once on the Iran deal because I know nothing about it. But I think when you've grown up, as uh, many younger journalists have, and George Bush, because you don't know a great deal about history, was the worst president in the world ever. <laughs> and Barack Obama is the greatest president in the world ever. And this is the worst Congress ever. You know, Ezra Klein writes this column every single year. This is the worst, not the one that passed the Fugitive Slave Act, not not the one that led up to the Depression, <laughs> not the Congress uh, uh, that Maybe uh, Ezra Klein is refused Fugitive Slave Act. I'm just <laughs> throwing that out there. It's possible. Not, not the Congress that refused to do anything about lynching. You know, this Congress is the worst ever. So you start to see it as, well, Obama is very, very good and the Republicans are very, very bad and George Bush was very bad and Obama wants this Iran deal and the Republicans don't want it. And so the whole story is MacGuffinized. It, it's not about the content of the deal. It's not about what people are saying for or against. It's purely drama. I thought it was fascinating to see who pushed back against the story. It was generally the marks, right? I mean, it was generally 26, 27, 29, 35-year-old uh, people uh, who don't know much about their subject, who are constantly criticized for not knowing much about their subject. And it's not really their fault. Uh, it, that, as you say, is the way that the media is now structured. Uh, but it's not going to lead to great outcomes for people who consume media or probably for the country at large uh, if we don't do something about it. Although what you do, I don't know. There's an amazing thing that I, this is what happens these days. There was a person, and I, he shall remain nameless, that uh, at Vox who is routinely mocked for something that he wrote about uh, Israel and said that there was a bridge that connected Gaza and the West Bank. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, you would know that this is the most ludicrous thing you could possibly imagine. And this is somebody who writes consistently about the Middle East. And that's not a cock up in the way that, you know, you know, I misspelled uh, this German guy named Marcus. It's with a K, not with a C, something like that. It is a major, m totally embarrassing screw up. That person was just hired by the New York Times, I believe. So, I mean, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters anymore. The idea that it's just the era of fact checking that's over. I mean, everything is gone to shit and I, and it's depressing every day because I don't, I mean, I used to read the newspaper. I used to read a couple of newspapers in, in, in the morning. I, I remember when I was in New York, I used to read, even read the New York Sun when I was living in New York in 2000. Really nice masthead. Beautiful paper and a great arts coverage too. Um, and you know, I'd read a bunch of papers and I don't remember that instinct that I had every day. To you know, one of the guys that started the New York uh, Sun actually uh, had a website at the time called Smarter Times. That's how it uh, came out of. Yes, yeah, so when it came out of this thing, Smarter Times that would correct the New York Times, and it was all about you know these people are elites. And they don't understand New York. So out of the, the borough cover, outer borough stuff, they'd get wrong because it'd be some sort of foppish kid from, from Princeton who knew nothing about Staten Island. That was the kind of, you know, thing with Smarter Times. And it was really, really the minutia, like kind of sort of tiny things. But then, you know, now I can't read websites, newspapers, whatever, without seeing 900 errors a morning that are massive, that are big. They're of the bridge that connects uh, Gaza mm -hmm. and and the West Bank style things. And I'm like, are you joking? You believe this is, is anyone paying attention? So it, it, it is. I mean, I hate to sound like an old man, but it, things have changed dramatically.
We're getting into the uh, right. the Moynihan nihilism spiral <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. here. Jesus sorry. Christ. Don't you have a, a syringe to, I'm a, to I'm help a, I'm, a, I'm a bit off today. Give us, give us some good news, Matt. Uh, good news is that we're going to talk about some idiot wrote this. Uh, <laughs> and it's going to be you talking about you're probably your favorite writer out there in the world. Oh. Uh, yeah, why not? But this isn't somebody that wrote this. It isn't? No, this no, is, is a, a this, this is uh, keeping it Camille. This is a, <laughs> this is a rant. It's back. It's back. It's back. I don't, I don't First of all, I'm going to tee this up by saying tonight, uh, although you're going to be listening to this after the fact, uh, Camille's going on a PBS uh, debate show, which mm. I've been on twice and lost both debates, uh, called Point Taken. And uh, Camille <laughs> is going to uh, argue against giving reparations. It's going to be so challenging. To black Americans uh, for uh, slavery. Uh, and so uh, Moynihan, trying to goad Camille, sent him a, a piece. Yeah, in- this reparations thing used to be this uh, weirdo idea that David Horowitz used to take on the road to, to annoy people. Now it's become mainstream. And there's a particular writer who's mainstreamed uh, this idea. And that writer is somebody who uh, every journalist alive is um, you, there, you have a it's like a ration card where you have to say that he's the most amazing writer in the history of civilization and they punch it for you that <laughs> five times a week. that should be sufficient and, for you and the that's, way. that's and good that, enough. yeah and that's uh, and that is a man named Tanisi Coates and Tanisi Coates is is uh, Camille's favorite writer and I love to go <laughs> I love to send him like I if Tanisi Coates you know uh, tweeted something about his breakfast I send it to Camille and it's just apoplexy afterwards <laughs> heart palpitations and sweatiness. So the latest one, uh, Camille, what did I, what's this latest outrage? I mean, honestly, like this is the thing. Sometimes I get upset and, and I'm able to just go, you know, I've got a hundred thousand opinions and perspectives and I want to offer them all. Ta-Nehisi Coates like fills me with dread. Like, he makes me feel, and this whole episode is like nihilism and dread and sadness because he makes me feel like disappointed disappointed in all of you and i I don't mean those of you listening because if you're listening there's hope for you yet you mean white people (laughs) (laughs) exactly um he makes me he makes me feel dread because i don't know how you can read this and not be like outraged not be at least confused really confused so the issue this weekend is that ta-nehisi coates has been enormously successful it's, it's a piece it's really, that he's written in the Atlantic talking it, referencing is it, is about his is about his enormous success and the trials and tribulations of enormous success and how when you buy a two point one million dollar home and everyone knows who the hell you are because you win awards all the time. People want to know where you live. And in New York City, you don't if you don't live here, you don't know. But there is a publication called Curbed. It's all about New York real estate, which is horrible. We should talk about that another day. It is terrible. I'm looking for a place to live now. It's awful. <laughs> they publish details about people who purchase homes in the area. If you're a celebrity, you know where the hot model who was in that great show or that awful show lives. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, how do I find out where to stand like outside of our house? And by the way, to point out, it's also, uh, you know, it's $2.1 million that Tony Z bought it. The, the reason this is also a news story is because there are 10 writers in America that can do that. That's right. So that's kind of interesting, right? Yeah. There's, yeah. there's not many, I mean, actresses, actors, I mean, you know, Christina yeah. Ricci bought something on my street a couple, couple months ago. That's not a big deal. This is a big deal because, and that story, by the way, was because she bought an apartment for $2.1 million also. And it was under the BQE, which is a, an expressway that goes through. Which is through. a whole other problem. Yeah, that's the story there. The story for Tony Zikos is writer has a lot of money. That's kind of rare. Right. So they, they published this thing 
It's out on the internet. I don't know that there were any death threats that were received by Ta-Nehisi Coates. I think most of the people who would actually actively hate him and try to do something about that hatred probably don't know who the hell he is. Or they're don't, not, or they're not buying against yeah. the world and me and yeah. good for them. Yeah. Um, but I know where he lives. So I immediately looked and I, I was going to rent a place really, really close by. So you dodged, you dodged a proverbial bullet there, were you, sir. Were you seriously um, thinking about the, stalking him? Uh, I'm totally going to live over there. That's, um, that, I, you I shouldn't didn't tell that. my wife. This, you know, this goes on the internet. I don't right? care. You're aware of that. That's fine. Okay. I, I want to meet in person. Yeah. I, He's a lot I've taller submitted. than you. He could take I'm, you. I don't want to fight him, Matt. <laughs> That is racist. This well, is true. Yeah. You know, every single time black you, black suggest, yeah, every time exactly. you suggest that I am Jesus. going to resort to violence because yeah. I don't like someone is yeah. another thing. I would rather, I want to have a conversation with dude. I want to yeah, record it and put it on television because I think that the emperor, I don't think, I know the emperor has no clothes. Man. Um, but Actually, anyway, the emperor has piece, really expensive clothes. Yeah, <laughs> They're really know. nice. I'm not even sure if he's doing that. <laughs> but at any rate, the piece was was awful and terrible. Um, it, it does really seem like sort of a look at me. I have so many problems because I'm so enormously wealthy and successful. Um, and he does manage to get in a few barbs in there about um, uh, 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 the the trials of being a black man in America and the dangers, uh, the dangers associated with his success and how he can never live where he wants to. Um, but, you know, his home paid for with broken black bodies, uh, which is a metaphor that he deploys over and over again in his very short but still seemingly interminably long <laughs> book. Yeah. Um, I, I don't even I'm not what's, sure where I'm going. The, I what's just, the exchange rate? I just don't like broken bloke, yeah. black bodies. To uh, apparently very high. It's very because you can it, buy a two point one million dollar home. And say, guys, yeah, I don't want that. You, you guys are, are you guys are cynical. Uh, listen, you, uh, he's I, I think he's an evocative writer. I, th- I have a, a better opinion of his writing style than both of you gentlemen. Probably. Yeah, go I won't speak for. for uh, I'm not going to really defend it much more beyond that. Well, he's sometimes lyrical. The thing, I, let me not give you that. It's the morality and substance that I. I agree. There is there is a curse with being a gifted writer, and this happens in a lot of different ways. Um, one of the curses is that you can at some point write about your bowel movements interestingly and people <laughs> respond positively to you. And so you think, huh, that's what I should do. I should write about my bowel movements because it's a lot less effort. He's based, This is a blog post. It's a 2,000-word blog post about the kind of mixed feelings that you have of trying to buy a home in your neighborhood that you used to live in now that you are a different person than you were before. You can't go home again. This happens. This is a thing that people write about in American life, but not every blog post is interesting, right? Not every like minor thought that you're having about this and that is interesting. He, a quick story about Tony. He's a coach. I hate him so much. <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, uh, he spends a lot of time. I don't hate him. He spends a lot of time in France and, uh, and I live in a neighborhood with a lot of French people. Uh, he came up to me uh, through a, a French friend who's like, who is this, uh, this, this, this man, this, uh, this, uh, this black man who's always talking about how racist America is? Uh, fine, okay, but, pff, all right. But, uh, but then he's saying that there's no racism in France. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> like yeah. uh, Tahisi Coates is, uh, he's great when he does deep dives into stuff that he knows about really well. But when he's writing about surface impressions of places that he doesn't know well, like France, um, then it doesn't work out so well. And you, I think he lacks why, that kind of editorial filter. You know why he really depresses me? You said he, he depresses you. Mm-hmm. He depresses me because if you read his book, he's essentially he essentially believes in original sin without redemption. Which is odd for an atheist. Right. So he's an atheist who believes in original sin without redemption. And that's the message he's given to his son, which is, look, America has this great original sin, which it does, and it can never get over it. Nothing that you do Mm -hmm. can fix it. Nothing that anyone else does can fix it. So you will forever live in hell. Right. And 
he's even now applying it to his success. He's essentially saying, uh-huh. I have risen above that which my ancestors had to contend with, and it's still awful. I'm still uh, under uh, the whip. And I think that that's immoral. It is, it is forever. It is eternal. And, and better than all of that, it's hereditary. It gets passed down. Every single white person alive today is equally guilty of the crimes perpetrated against black Americans and black Americans to the extent that they ever do anything wrong. It's not their fault. It is the fault of the white supremacist system and whiteness in general. It is asinine foolishness. And I, I will close this I, whole. The, my let me whole, say one thing oh, to that is that there there is a certain amount of truth to the fact that the kind of superstructure of this created, you know, the neighborhoods that you see now, like, I mean, uh-huh. the, the reason the things later, I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to, I mean, I, I know you're not doing this, but yeah. I, it's really, some people say that there's, that this is crazy and you can't, you know, even think about it in that way. But <clears throat> the problem with the sort of Tony Hesey Coates thing is this idea of white supremacy, which now is completely, you know, unrelated to what white supremacy, it's just something that people say, whether you're Azalea Banks or something, oh, everybody's God. just saying white supremacy all the time. And it, it's completely divorced from what white supremacy is. And I think that the bigger problem with Tennessee Coast is that when you're told that everything that you say is deeply profound, you, ha- you, you come across the profundity problem, and which is essentially that I am moving to a neighborhood and somebody blogged about it because I bought a very expensive house in a neighborhood which there aren't, you know, people don't buy really $2.1 million big houses in Lefferts. It's not the nicest neighborhood. There's actually quite it's, a few of them, it's, unfortunately. It's, 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 trust me, it's coming up now. But yeah. this is, you know, a guy who, I mean, Charles had said before that when he moved to Connecticut that it was, you know, a place where a lot of people live that have, you know, are famous people. And it, it came up in the real estate. People need things to write about. So when you have your profundity problem is right. that everything has to be profound because he's a sage and people treat him that way. And guess what? When you treat people that way, every utterance, it has to, you know, read the tea leaves of it. What is Ta-Nehisi really saying? What can what sort of wisdom can this guy who's a sort of mediocre writer impart today? And it's, I mean, so much of this is, you know, a reflection of the attitudes of the people who are praising him, you know, less than it is his writing. But, you know, this is what happens. Every blog post, everything that happens in his life is now seen through the prism of, you know, his book and this, and, and you get nonsense pieces like this. You also, um, you know, famous people live in New York. They, they figure out how to do it. Shocking. And it's, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, if it, I'll, I'll close out this whole thing with one, one more thing, and maybe it's a word of praise in the beginning of, in the world and me, Tanahasi does give sort of a, a, a historically accurate account of what blackness is. And eventually even manages to get around to saying that a lot of the sort of weird history that you hear if you go to a, a black barbershop, I'm doing air quotes, um, where you talk about the black man is, you know, he, he, we built the pyramids in Africa. We have greatness in us. He recognizes blackness for what it is in the book, that it is this ephemeral thing of, sort of little consequence, no genetic um, yeah. certainty whatsoever. It, it just isn't a thing. It is a lie. It's a pernicious lie. It's tribalism. And tribalism is ultimately about fear. And it is a lie that has been sort of forced upon all of us is what he says. And I think that's right. I agree with that. What is unbelievable to me is that by the end of this book and throughout the the constant thread in all of his work is that we should still be proud of it somehow. We should still wrap ourselves in it. We should still embrace it passionately because it is who we are and our blackness is, is vital. 
Um, and I find that just completely bizarre and irrational and ridiculous. Uh, and that is my my core complaint with the man. But the his argument would be that that is forced upon you. It is not. It's so a choice have, that he makes that, that every one, single day. That one walks outside, and even if you think it's ephemeral and it has no, uh, except of, in France, yeah, except <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the yeah, sunlit uplands where everything is. Yeah. So let's. Uh, we're running out of time. So let's do um, our favorite segment. This some is idiot, idiot wrote this. this, and we have a um, a special. Some idiot wrote this today. Decided a minute before we started that we're going to give. <laughs> this to our uh, uh, guest, uh, Charles C.W. Cook. Uh, somebody wrote this, and weirdly, it's uh, you know, a story from Breitbart. Odd that. Odd written by that, isn't it? intellectual-in-chief Julia Hahn. <laughs> <laughs> the, the story hits Paul Ryan because he suggested that the uh, American government should not discriminate in its immigration law uh, against Muslims, uh, but also sends his children to a Catholic school. Now, if you think that sounds like a raging non sequitur, <laughs> you are correct. I think the implication is that Paul Ryan is not prepared to pre prepared to protect Americans from Muslims uh, at the border, yeah. but will nevertheless sequester his children away in a school that is not appealing to Muslims because it's Catholic. But this is obviously a huge uh, comparing apples to oranges uh, mistake. Uh, it's essentially akin to saying Paul Ryan says there should be no federal censorship laws but belongs to a golf club, uh, which <laughs> prohibits profanity. Yeah. I mean, th these, are, these are not the same thing. Uh, but to Julia Hahn, this is apparently a scandal. There is also, I think, the detail that uh, he has a fence. In, oh, that was his, a good one, in too. His that uh, was a surrounding good one. his house. Oh, yeah. And yet he's against a 2,000-mile border wall. I wow. Mean, what that is a hypocrite. How could you possibly? How could you ever have? I mean, he, I heard he has locks on the doors to his house, too. <laughs> what a hypocrite. I mean, locks? I, uh, I don't want Guards? To, I don't want to play the uh, I knew Andrew Breitbart card since uh, 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 me and, and 10,000 other people knew Andrew Breitbart. They probably it. drank in my backyard a little bit more than the average person. But the idea that uh, Andrew Breitbart would be really upset about someone not wanting to affirmatively ban all people of a certain faith to enter in America ever is just uh, it's ludicrous to me. Yeah, well, I mean, I just say this before we go: that Julia Hahn, that's her name, right? Has um, also, uh, you know, I want full disclosure here. She's also accused you of being, uh, you know, seditious uh, yeah. Brit and perfidious Albion. Has uh, I'm not allowed to comment on American politics. Really? Did she, has she called you a cuck? No, she oh, didn't call gosh. me a cuck. But she did send me the funniest email I've ever received, and I replied because she she asked me five questions for a piece she wrote. And you published this. What was the fun, the weirdest element? Of oh, well, there were two great ones. The first one was that I made some predictions about the election and she couldn't distinguish between what I thought was going to happen uh, from what I wanted to happen. And so she said, you've said that Hillary Clinton will probably win. But wh why do you want that to happen? <laughs> it's like, look, I, I want England to win the World Cup in 2018. I don't think they're going to. Uh, I'm intelligent enough to make yeah. that distinction. You're essentially Lord Ha Ha yeah. for saying oh, that. She also yeah. told me that I should not comment until I become an American citizen yeah. on anything related wow. to national wow. politics. Well, you know, there was, there was a lot of laughter today. But honestly, I do feel a little sad. I feel a little sad. Why? I think there's like a lot of sad stuff that we covered today. Oh, God, Camille. The state of the world is maybe... 
a little. You know, little we, sad. we can you, can someone of, tell me something good as we, we have a bunch of loyal that? listeners, by the way, uh, who send us nice. Uh, well, sometimes that's not true. Nice we stuff. do. Yeah, and then, and then you end on a army. bummer. You're, You're right. gonna like bring them down. No, that is that is the best thing happening in the world today. Um, that our audience continues to grow. Our what's, influence. What's uh, what, what's something positive we can finish on? Let's that is it. I mean, that's our audience is growing. That's it. Yeah, nice. Holy crap. Yeah. This was fantastic. Uh, check us out at we the fifth dot com and uh, hit us on Twitter and buy Charles C W Cook's uh, book. Yeah, buy his book. It's out in paperback now. and go to his podcast to Mad Dogs in English and show up at his house. He'll sign it for you. <laughs> yeah, because it's in the paper. You can find out where he lives. Greenwich, Connecticut. Yeah. <laughs> we, 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 we know of new methods of attack. <laughs>